Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. My name is Jeffrey Zakarian, and you're listening to Four Courses with Jeffrey Zakarian from iHeartRadio. In Four Courses... I'll be taking you along for the ride while I talk with the top talent of our time. In each conversation, I focus on four different areas from my guest's life and career. And during those four courses, I'm going to dig deep and uncover new insights and inspirations that we can all use to fuel ourselves to push forward. My guest for this episode started her career in food as an apprentice in two of New York's most legendary kitchens. She formerly ran the food and wine classic in Aspen, and has been a judge on Bravo TV's Top Chef for 18 seasons. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Gail Simmons. Hi, Gail. Hello, Jeffrey Zakarian. What a pleasure. <laughs> for my first course, we hear all about how Gail's parents had complimentary impacts on her love of food. So when you were growing up, I always want to know, like I close my eyes and I can think of... As a child, the smell of my house mm-hmm. and the smell of my mother's cooking. So what was that for you? Because oh. it was an interesting house. You grew up in um, Toronto. It's a powerful memory. I, I know you know Toronto well. I do very well. What was that for you? So a few things in the... I'm like literally closing my eyes. No, you have to. It's really important. It's so powerful. It really rushes back. In the winter, it is soups. Like it is soup making. My mother made 
you know, classic Jewish mother, matzah ball soup for sure. The best. The best, but also a lot of vegetable soups. But I have like the smell of of chicken broth is sort of what I imagine in my house in the wintertime. Schmaltz. And schmaltz, absolutely. (laughs) But then in the summertime, and this is sort of interesting, the smell, two things, the smell, and my mom was a very good cook, but the smell of plum tarts, you know. Wow. So interestingly, my mother always made this plum tart. You know, it was like a vanilla cake that she baked Italian prune plums into in the summer oh, and with vanilla. And so this kind of thought of these plum tart cakes that were always on the counter and that which she, might, she was not a baker. This was literally the only thing I ever remember her baking. And <laughs> it was only when I was in maybe even 40 that I realized that the recipe is that classic plum tart recipe from the New York Times, more or less, with some of her tweaks and adjustments that I then took and adjusted and tweak and I now make. It's sort of an upside down cake thing going on there. Is it like that? It is essentially the same, but it's not upside down. Oh, yeah. You, know, okay. you cook it right side up so that the fruit roasts on top. Wow. That's incredible. Did dad cook or did dad just uh, did he eat? No, he did not cook. I mean, our joke my whole life was that he barely knew how to turn the dishwasher on. <laughs> and my mom was so in charge of the kitchen and so competent there that, like, there was nothing. Like, he never even came into the kitchen. That was her domain. Why bother, right? Except he made three things. Every summer, he made pickles. So he would go to the market and he would buy bushels of Kirby cucumbers. Gotta be Kirby's. Exactly. And make full sour dill, kosher style pickles. And it was all my dad. He made applesauce, same way. He would get bushels of apples in the fall. He used the skin of plums in the applesauce so that the applesauce was bright fuchsia. Wow. My memory of breakfast often in the morning was a bowl of my dad's applesauce with cream on top. And then the third thing he would make was on the weekends, he would let my mom sleep in and take care of me and my brothers in the morning. I have dual brothers. And he would make us chocolate cream of wheat. So, you know, cream of wheat, like hot cereal. Yeah. So my dad grew up in South Africa eating something called mealy pop, which is essentially polenta. It's cornmeal. Mm-hmm. It's 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 grits. It's a fine milled grit. And, you know, that was something very traditional in South Africa that he ate growing up. So he was a hot cereal eater every morning. But on special occasions and on weekends for us, he would make us like cream of wheat and he would uh, stir cocoa into it for us. Yum. And that was like our special dad... Thing. And what's interesting, and I'm curious about it with you because you're the chef in the house. Like for us, my mom was the most phenomenal cook, but we were so used to her cooking that it though it was those three things I remember most. Yeah, I know. Even though my mom was like cooking nonstop, making the most beautiful meals for us all the time. It was like our dad's special three things that we were like in of. Yeah, no, I know. It, I get that all the time. I cook all the time. And, you know, when I leave for a go film a shoot and my wife makes breakfast for the kids and, you know, when I come back and like, dad, mom's eggs are better than yours. You know, I'm like, okay. You're like, I have 30 years of training. And I'm happy. It's very fun. But that sounds like your your dad is quite the, that's a kind of a thing that perfectionists do. Yes. You know, they, they structure. Yes. 
You're deep in my dad's psychosis right now. And I like it because, (laughs) well, my father's an engineer. He's a chemical engineer, you know, a scientist. He, yes, these are projects. These were his like science experiments. This is how you do it. There's no other way. Yes. (laughs) Wow. So your mom, I mean, I mean, it's kind of like, not fair. Your mom was a food columnist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. honestly, you're like at home, you're in a very, very warm family and you're like reading, obviously you're reading. When did you get into your mom's actual, when you read them like, oh, this is really mouthwatering. This like makes me hungry or this, when did that happen? I mean, what age? Not until college. I truly, it was osmosis for sure. Yeah. No, I was around great food. My mom was a great cook. She ran a cooking school out of our kitchen. She built our kitchen in 1982. They gutted our kitchen and we and she rebuilt our kitchen at our house so that it could be more conducive to cooking classes. Wow. So that there was like a pass that she could stand at where the stove was. You know, she built this area with a huge living room open to the living room, dining room so that people could sit in the living room, dining room and she could teach. And... She wrote a column for the Globe and Mail, which is Canada's biggest newspaper, for years until I was probably 10 years old. And I knew it. I was like proud of it. I thought it was cool, but it wasn't in my purview of like careers, interestingly. And I really didn't give it a second thought until college. I mean, how it affected me most, Jeffrey, when I was growing up was that all I wanted was like mac and cheese and hot dogs because that's something I never got at home because my mom was like cooking shadro. I don't know, you know. <laughs> and it was really only at the end of college when I was living on my own with roommates and started to cook for myself in earnest that the light went on. And that's when I started reading magazines and all of a sudden realizing, oh wait, my mom did this. And I would call her for her recipes in the middle of the night. And I started reading Food and Wine magazine and I remember for my college graduation, I went to McGill University and for college graduation, my mom was going to take me on a trip for my college graduation, just the two of us. So fun. So the choices were, do you want to go to either the Food and Wine Classic in Aspen or to Napa and Sonoma and San Francisco? Because I'd never, I'd never been to any of those places. That's not fair. And I chose San Francisco and Napa, Sonoma. But that was the trip that like, I came home from college and was like, this is what I'm going to do with my life. But it really wasn't until then. And even then, my mom was like, are you sure you don't want to go to law school? Even though it was her job for such a big part of her life, she was not convinced that this was the road I should take. I'm still not sure she's convinced, actually. I'm not sure either, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. if I'm really honest with myself. But did you, first thing I do when I see a city is like, if it's not doesn't have good restaurants, I'm not going. Yeah. So did you line up all the restaurants in San Francisco? Always. I mean, I remember I remember almost every meal. So this is like what, 98, 99? 98. 98. So what were the hot restaurants in San Francisco? What was it like Stars, uh, Chez Panisse? I remember all of them. We didn't make it to Chez Panisse. We went to the Slanted Door. Slanted Door, amazing. Amazing. We went to Swan Oyster Depot. We went to Zuni Cafe. And so my best friend, this is sort of an interesting thing. My best friend since I was born, right when college ended, he moved out to San Francisco and went and enrolled in the California Culinary Academy. So he was there already when I came out to San Francisco. And so his mom came out as well at the same time. And so me and his mom and my mom had this like four day eating exploration of San Francisco together. And I was, you know, I, I was 21 
And I remember every meal and Zuni Cafe. Like I remember sitting and ordering the roast chicken at Zuni Cafe. Yeah. And it just being like such a revel. I mean, it sounds cliche. Everyone has that moment. You can't not have that moment when you sit at Zuni Cafe. Same with the slanted door. It was the original slanted door, not the one that's now in the ferry building. It was like upstairs, downstairs in the mission. There's great Vietnamese food in, in Canada, in Montreal and Toronto, but I had never eaten Vietnamese food in that way before. And I remember Swan Oyster Depot. Like I remember, yeah, I remember it well. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant. Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Because there's nothing like a weekend pause with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. For my second course, we explore Gail's rapid rise through the food industry starting with being an apprentice cook in New York City and rising to run the food and wine classic in Aspen, Colorado. And I moved to New York City and I lived in my good friend's closet for a year and a half. <laughs> I've done that. In Murray Hill. And I went to culinary school and I just kind of jumped in 
feet first and loved culinary school. And, and then when I graduated, I was like, okay, great. Now I can go back to writing and I'm just going to get a job. You know, maybe I'll get an internship. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to do an apprenticeship when you graduate mm -hmm. culinary school and externship. And I was like, great, I'm going to go to the gourmet magazine kitchens and that'll be my job. And then I can go back to Canada and be a food writer, right? Like snap your fingers. Mm -hmm. But my culinary school really deterred me from doing that. And I didn't understand at the time, but they were like, go to a kitchen, just go work as a cook. Like you need to work as a cook. You still don't know how to cook. You've done everything once culinary school, like any sort of like, even if it's a master's degree, whatever it is, yep. you don't have any practical experience. And they convinced me to go to kitchens and cook. And I'm so glad they did. I, I didn't know at the time how valuable that would be. Yeah. I cooked for a while. I ended up cooking longer than I thought I would in two you know, big New York kitchens. They really kicked my ass, <laughs> as you could imagine. I went to Le Cirque, Le Cirque 2000, right? Were you at Le Cirque? Yeah, I was at Le Cirque from 1983 to 1988. Yeah, you were there in the Danielle years. No, that was before Danielle, but now that's where Danielle Restaurant is, where Le Cirque used to be. So you did 2000, were you at? At the Palace Hotel. Yeah, Sota was someone who was my sous chef mm -hmm. in 88 when he was at, when before they moved. Yeah. I never forget him. He would look at me with his eyes and he would say, that's no good. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's no good. I'll show you. And he sort of took a liking to me. Oh, you're lucky. And he would show me, he had this wizardry of flavors. He was not like the yelling chef. No. He was like, no, no, come here. He was like your best friend. Come, come, let me show you this. Don't, don't do this. He was stealth. Yeah, he was. We used to call him the shark because we all wore, <laughs> we all wore, you know, the toques, the big round toques with the big round top. But his toque had came to a point at the top, and he was small, a small man, and he would weave through the kitchen yes. like a shark. Um, and he kind of never talked directly to me because I was the apprentice. I was like, you know, the extern. He, but he would once in a while just come up to my station and like stuff a piece of Peking duck in my mouth and be like, eat that. And it was always like unbelievable. He was an amazing man. You worked at like, there's many list circles. You worked at the one that had that gorgeous kitchen and a gl glamorous kitchen. dining room. Yeah. I mean, we worked, it was a special place there. It really, really was. That was a moment. I mean, imagine being in the kitchen. So how, what station did you work? You know, I started doing a lot of prep work, obviously. And then I worked pastas, hot apps, risotto, like pasta risotto station, hot apps for a, a, a long time. And then I left for a number of reasons and went to Vong. With Philippe? With Philippe, yes, Chef Philippe. Vong was a very different kitchen in a million ways, but I actually was a lot happier there. Le Cirque was a really huge kitchen. I was the only woman. I kind of got lost. It wasn't a great time in my life. Like it was a very difficult time. And I wasn't my best self, but also Le Cirque, I felt was a really tough kitchen to crack. And yeah, it was, it's very tough. I didn't think I was, it was good for my mental health. And so I went to Vong and it was a much smaller kitchen. I was still the only woman. This is now 1999. And I, I loved cooking at Vong. Vong was groundbreaking. You know, Jean-Georges, it was like- It was, yeah. Three-star Thai, French- the ingredients that I cooked with there, I had never seen before at the time, you know, and the crew was just a, a really great sort of like pack of hooligans, but they were good to me and they taught me a lot. And I have really fond memories of my time at Vong. Were these two apprenticeships to complete your ICE education? Yes. No, I did Le Cirque and that completed it. And then I went to Vong and I, I was cooking, you know, I was a cook. And then you went to work with Jeffrey. And then I left. Exactly. I got the job at... I, 
while I was at Vong, I read Jeffrey Steingarten's book. One of the funniest books I've ever read. Yeah, there's so much about his writing that is extraordinary. Like long format food writing that really doesn't exist anymore. Doesn't exist. Nope, it doesn't. It's too bad because yeah. he was really groundbreaking. I mean, he was a difficult guy. <laughs> I remember him. He's one of those people that are right, but also kind of obnoxious at the same time. You're like, okay, I get I get it on the first pass. You're right. You don't have to tell me three times. <laughs> oh, he'll let he won't you know let you I mean? forget it, of course. Well, imagine when you're when you're twenty-four years old and this is uh how you're working for him. I think it's kind of good. I think it's kind of good because there's no bullshit and you don't want to get bullshit when you're twenty-four. You know, because it really, I think it annexes a part of your brain that you don't want to use yet. You, you, you just want to use, you want the truth. Just give me the truth yeah. and the facts and I'll figure it out. I'm, I'm, I can do that. And you know what? He pushed me in a lot of ways. I worked for Jeffrey for two years as his assistant in all things. I did his research. I did his recipe testing. I did all his shopping for crazy esoteric ingredients and equipment. And it really was like, I, I say this all the time. It was the most formative. What a great experience. Two years in New York. He introduced me to everyone. Like he would take me to dinner with Pierre Hermé and, and Dory Greenspan and Danielle. I mean, that's how I met Danielle. And he was flying to Thailand for three weeks at a time to research mortar and pestles and then coming home to me and saying, okay, Gail, these are the specifications. Go out and track one down in America. And I would spend three weeks tracking down the perfect mortar and pestle to make Thai curries. Like it was just like, I mean, on paper, the most amazing job. It was an incredibly challenging job because he was an incredibly challenging person. And we were working <laughs> alone in his kitchen every day, one-on-one. -on -one. But he was like my father, you know. I worked for Danielle for three years and it was through Danielle doing kind of marketing and PR that I met the team at Food and Wine. And ultimately, Chris hired me in the end of 2004 to come work for the marketing team at Food and Wine. And I didn't even know what the job was going to be. But I just knew that after my work with Vogue and my work with Danielle, that this was the opportunity to put it all together and that I'd be working for the magazine I had admired since I was in college. And I would didn't know if I'd get to write or do, but I loved all the stuff I'd been doing with Danielle too. It really opened my eyes to the business of restaurants, to the mm -hmm. importance of marketing and PR and that sort of engine and the socialization of that, as opposed to like sitting at your computer and just writing all day long. So I knew that food and wine and this job under Christina would just give me the opportunity to do all those things together for a pub for, you know, in the media, which is where my goal had been since I had left Canada. And so I went to Food and Wine. Yeah. And I, I ran the marketing department. I ended up within a year running the classic in Aspen. You know, it must have been for you, like, this is a dream come true. This is all my favorite things. I came from this family with a food writing mom. I love pickles. And here I am in Aspen. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I get to do everything I want to do and eat whatever I want. And I have all the best chefs here. I don't have to go anywhere. They just, yep. they came to me. Yep. That's like incredible. And what I loved about it too is the operations of it. Like what I found that I actually loved was the production of the whole thing. That's making pickles, Gail, making pickles. Yeah. I know, I'm my father's child. It's true. I loved the details of all of the work. I mean, it was a full year round job to get everybody to that crazy place in the mountains for four days. No kidding. And I worked with a team of four in New York and four in Aspen under Devin Paget, who I know you know well too. He is the best. I mean, he's my big brother forever and ever. 
We need to make a, a statue for Devin. I know, <laughs> there it, should right be. In, Aspen. In, the, in the center of Aspen, in front of the little nail. Right in the center of it. This is the guy that makes, sort of put Aspen on the map for a lot of people. You know, Devin and I were co-pilots for five years. And oh. he and, and just, I loved the work of putting it all together. All the pieces for the consumers, for the chefs, for the sponsors, for the magazine, for the editors, like all of the thousands of details that, you know, were in my binder. The logistics of something like the Aspen Food and Wine Festival is sort of, people don't understand it. If anybody ever gets a chance to go, it's one of the best I've ever been to. And it's one of the best run. It's small and it's not an easy pace to run a festival. Yeah, it's it's very in-depth. It's, it's, it's hard too because you have altitude, you have planes that don't show up, you have chefs that are like drinking too much. And, you know, it's all exciting all those things that are that are <laughs> funny, but like what an amazing sort of very quick, that's a rapid fire career. Yeah, I mean, it happened, this was like from the time I moved to New York to the time I stopped running the Classic in Aspen was 10 years. From the time I moved to New York to the time I started at Food & Wine was five years. And then I ran the Classic for five years. That is, that is literally nothing. And people, I, I, I want to get that, young people ask me all the time, how do you get on TV? I'm like, Wrong question. <laughs> yeah. Wrong yeah. question. You know, right. it's like you got you to gotta know your craft. You're so right. And I hear this and talk about this all the time that like, I didn't go on TV first. Like I had 10 years of experience in the industry and that is still not very much, but a full decade of working in so many different sides of the industry. And I could not have gotten the job that I do now without every minute of what came before it. Right. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant... Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. 
So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Because there's nothing like a weekend pause with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. For my third course, Gail and I pull back the curtain and let my listeners in on what it's like to be a judge on a top TV cooking show. Gail has been a regular judge on Bravo's TV Top Chef since the show's inception in 2006. What a perfect specimen for Top Chef to have in you because you've just come off this like explosion of information and now they need someone who can like be relevant also and actually be a formative judge who has the correct opinions and you've become so good at it because you're with, you've been with so many opinion makers that know what they're doing. True. So it was really a, a sort of a genius. I don't know if they knew that at the time. Food and Wine sort of put me up for the job because Food and Wine was partnering with, with Bravo to make this totally new show, this cooking format that was very out of left field that we certainly didn't know if it was going to be successful. And there was nothing else of its kind out there when we started. And they sort of threw me into the fire being like, yeah, Gail, just go for this screen test with, you know, at 30 Rock. We're thinking of partnering with Bravo on a reality cooking competition. And I almost like ran and cried because I was like, what? Reality TV? Like, I'm not doing that. That's crazy. Why would you throw me to the lions like that? You know, I'm just going to get decimated because all I knew of reality television at the time was like Survivor. Desperate Housewives. Yeah, not even. <laughs> It was like, it was like, even before that, it was, yeah, but it was like Survivor and Fear Factor. <laughs> and so, and we trusted Bravo because they had just started making Project Runway. So I knew they were serious and this was the yeah. same format, but we really had no precedent before us for the show we were going to make. And I remember going for the screen test, scared out of my mind and just worried more than anything. Like if, if we were a failure, I didn't really care if like, the viewers out there saw me, wouldn't know who I was. You know, I was nobody, like no one. So I wasn't worried about embarrassing myself to viewers. It was more about my industry. You guys, right? You specifically and all of your friends and yeah. thinking that we were going to be like the laughing stock. And I know that was Tom's worry too. Like, what if this fails? We could fail in a really big way here and be, you know, the the kind of the laughing stock of, of our industry. But we took a chance and and thankfully Tom really has been our our north star our moral compass in keeping us you know towing the line the whole way through and making sure that it is not about the drama but that it's about the food and and he was right from the beginning and that's the course we took we're very grateful to it you're so natural on this show it's a very hard show very at 6 a.m we could be eating like you know intestines you <laughs> yes. know and it's just and we have and I know what you think about being like made fun of and professional because Tom was like a serious dude mm -hmm. and a seriously talented chef so I'm sure that he was didn't want it to be a, you know a quote unquote a laughing stock I think it was authentic and it had people that are authentic I think so people see that they and they, they see it right away and you have instant certifiability and that's what that's why shows work and they don't work if you ask me I think so too I mean I think we've both been lucky to be on shows that at the end of the day just want to have like a real conversation about food and that 
you can't take it too seriously, but you also have to respect respect it. And when you have a group of people together who have that really common goal, you know, it's a lot about chemistry, but we have this sort of shared purpose and the production company and the networks that we both work with, I think, obviously share that. And so are committed to just pushing us and pushing the show to just be the best it can be, which is why both of our shows, luckily enough, have had longevity in a way that I certainly never imagined never. in my life. I mean, in 2005, I remember them sending me to San Francisco to shoot that first season of Top Chef. And Christina was like, don't worry, Gail, just go for three weeks. Then you'll come back. You'll go back to your job running the classic in Aspen. And like, we'll just go about our business. Like, it won't be a big deal. And then it aired and it actually wasn't a huge hit the first time it aired. They re-ran the first season and only the second time they ran that first season did it pick up speed. And then they ordered a second season. And I was like, Chris, we're doing a second season. And I mean, if there's a third season, we're going to have to start talking about how I'm going to be splitting my job time. (laughs) And she was like, Gail, calm down. Third season? Like, come on. Don't get ahead of yourself here. It's third season. I mean, I just made my 18th season, right? So we didn't know. We didn't know. I'll give you the same story. When, when they, I auditioned for Chopped in 2007, and Scott Fellman, as we both know and love, my manager, said, you got to try for the show. I'm like, Chop, what's this about? And he said, well, it's three judges, and there's a gun, and if they don't like you, they chop you. I'm like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Maybe you don't know this, but the the person that got chopped, the dish that got chopped was supposed to, they had a dog and they would feed the chopped dish to a dog. No. That was the first iteration. (laughs) Can you imagine if they kept that? They thankfully didn't air air that, they took it out or they changed it. But I think it's one of the key ways that people, non-cooks learn. They watch these shows and they learn, they watched judges judging and they they get it. If they get it, they're like, oh yeah, I now I know why my asparagus mm-hmm. is, tastes like this because the, now I get it. And so they, it's a real connector. No question. But we were teaching them about identifying moments in their life that they'd eaten something and it didn't really, they didn't like it. And the reason why they didn't like it was because it wasn't cooked properly. Right. So the reason why people don't like Brussels sprouts is because your mom boiled the shit out of them and they smelled like sulfur. My mom still won't eat Brussels sprouts because when she was <laughs> a child, she had to eat them at school and that they boiled Brussels sprouts and served them to the girls for lunch every day. And my mom, now at the age of 80, still won't eat Brussels sprouts. And I'm like, mom, let me make you a good Brussels sprout. So our shows are myth busters, really. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. I love that. That's what keeps the viewer coming back. Like, oh my God, what else do I don't not know <laughs> that I need to know? And what have I believed for so long that I've never understood? And now it's like literacy in this craft. Food has changed so much. Like, so the food I'm tasting now on Chopped, mm-hmm. I have 13 years of tasting the food that was started. It's, it's evolved so much. There's still crappy cooks and chefs that cook it. And like, they're not really their home cooks. And they're like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. They have learned from our show, the changes in cuisine. And so they're mimicking what they've learned, even though they're mm-hmm. not necessarily a chef. And so we see that at the judging table. It's kind of fascinating. Oh, yeah. It trickles down, of course, into the cultural you know, trends of how, how we all eat. There's no question. For my fourth and final course, Gail shares the surprising lessons that cooks are taking away from the past years. So your past season, what, what had struck you about your last past season that is, is so different? What has struck you about the, the food and, the, and how people sort of 
the vision of food because what I'm noticing in my side is people want simple killer flavors, like mm-hmm. less less is more, but more of the best. What have you found? Simplifying the way young cooks cook has always been our mantra on Top Chef. But this year, the takeaway for me for Top Chef, which was an un, it was an outlying year, right? We shot, we only shoot once a year. Top Chef. We now are making Top Chef amateurs. That's done separately. And there were years past when we did more than one season, but we only do one. Four, it's 14 episodes once a year. Once a year. And it takes us two months to make 14 episodes because it's two to three days an episode. And this year we built a production bubble. We shot in Portland, Oregon, which in many ways was going through a triple pandemic while we were there. I mean, there was forest fires. There was obviously... COVID, there was intense civil and social justice protesting, rioting happening all around us, but specifically in Portland, you know, it had so much conflict. But we also chose Portland because the the COVID rates were really low there so that we could relocate to Portland. And so how does that come out in the food, which is your original question? And I will say that this year, more than anything else, you know, in past years, and if you look at the sort of trajectory over the years from where we started with Top Chef to where we are now. It used to be that the cooks came and they cooked, no matter where they were from, no matter their personal heritage, they cooked the food that they thought we wanted to eat in America, which is like kind of Western European tradition, right? You know, we had chefs from everywhere from China to the Caribbean serving us Italian and French food. And I'm not saying that a lot of it wasn't amazing. It was extraordinary because these are professionals. However, we didn't want to see that from them. Like, where's your soul? Where's your heart? Where are you cooking from? And so many times on the show, their evolution by the time they left the show, think about chefs like Shirley Chung or Nina Compton. Mm -hmm. You know, Nina was working for Scott Conant running his Italian kitchen in Miami. But by the time she left Top Chef, she was like, I need to cook Caribbean food. I'm from St. Lucia. I need to cook from my heritage. And she went to New Orleans and merged it and, and created her restaurant. So this season on Top Chef, we started in a different place because the world was in a different place. And the chefs on this season came to us with a lot of figuring out to do about who they are as chefs. But what they knew and what they all gave us from the beginning was their heritage. Like no longer do we give a crap about that kind of Western European model. If that's what you cook best and that's who you are, great, give it to me. But the best moments of our season have been from chefs who were truly cooking from their heritage, which has nothing to do with our heritage, right? We are learning from them, from the African diaspora, from all across regions of Mexico, from Vietnam and Japan and from the American South. And those are the cuisines that we need to hear about, the representation we need to see. Those are the food ways that this country was really built on. And I think what are the most important foods for us all in our kind of understanding of American culture that that we want to see and, and to amplify. And that was the lesson of this year on Top Chef, I think. Those are the foods you identify with. And I, to this day, if I really cooked what I wanted to cook, I would cook what I was born and raised with, which was Middle Eastern food every right. single day, but of it was course. delicious. So oh, in my mind, beautiful. I'm saying one day I'm going to open up 
uh, an Armenian bistro and just say, fuck it. Oh, Jeffrey, do it. Because no one could do it better than you. No, I know. It's just funny. That's It took a pandemic to get the top chefs to actually cook the food they like. <laughs> cook from your heart. Like, cook from your heart, not from your brain. I hope the pandemic will stop the narrative of the food critic coming in and trouncing someone because they can. Oh, yeah. I think it has to change. I think it has to, and it will. There's no room in our industry anymore for negativity. There can't be. Right. Well, there's no reason to destroy a restaurant. If you want to have write something that's off color a bit. Be constructive, I think, is, is it. Be constructive. Don't waste time killing people. Why, why, these people, are, they're killing themselves. You don't have to kill them for them. Right. That's the thing. Like if the, if the pandemic taught the public you know, and customers anything, consumers, diners, it is the struggle of making a living in the restaurant industry. And we're up against enough. You know, restaurateurs and chefs are up against enough just to feed their families and keep their employees employed, especially right now that the conversation has to change. And I think we're headed in the right direction, like James Beard Foundation not giving awards and winners this year, I think said a lot. It's just about just raising and lifting people up and telling stories when they're great. And if they're not great, you know, you don't need to tell them. You don't need to promote that. Let's just promote, you know, promote the strength of this industry and the, and the way that it is nourishing people. Well, I am in good company today with you. And I, I, I could talk all day. We don't have all day, unfortunately. I'm so happy to have, to get to catch up with you though, Jeffrey. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks very much for listening to Four Courses with Jeffrey Zakarian, a production of iHeartRadio and Corner Table Entertainment. Four Courses is created by Jeffrey Zakarian, Margaret Zakarian, Jared Keller, and Tara Halper. Our executive producer is Christopher Hesiotis. Four Courses is produced by Jonathan Hawes Dresler. Our research is conducted by Jesselyn Shields. This episode was engineered by Katie Fellman and edited and mixed by Joe Tisdall. Our talent booking is by Pamela Bauer at Dogtown Talent. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io/ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.